The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode five of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factory Direct via my home studio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, that beat is from DJ Hartman. DJ, DJ. That intro beat is by TJ Hartman. TJ was the one who wrote this beat last week. We had Eric Toombs. He played to this beat as well. This beat was part of our ongoing The Drum Club project in partnership with Big Fat Snare Drum. So TJ wrote that beat, and then we all got together. We all did our own versions of it. We all got together to watch each other's playing, talk about it. We do have another one coming up, so if you want to become part of the Drum Club project, just go over to the Drum Factory Direct or the Big Fat Snare Drums Instagram pages. There's a link to download this week's. Actually, we're meeting on September 15th. Make sure I got the right details. September 15th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the track for this time is by the great great drummer, composer, Gunnar Olsen. So we're going to get together on, that's a Thursday night, 9.15 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. We're all going to get together and hang out and talk about drums. So again, thanks TJ for the beat. Thanks Eric last week for that. And if anyone else wants to participate, shoot over your beats to, um, what is it, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. They don't all have to be Drum Club Project um, videos, but that's what I had access to at the moment for the first few episodes, and we're still going to feature those. But if you have anything you want to send over, you just playing drums, or if you got a song that you wrote or, or a loop or something you're practicing to, just shoot it over. It's uh, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. I hope everyone had a good holiday weekend. I didn't expect a whole lot of industry news to happen during this weekend, so um, just a few things to, to bring up. First of all, thank anyone who purchased our Labor Day special, which was the seamless 5x14 aluminum snare with an extra head, uh, two sets of extra wires, um, some moon gel drum key um, straps and cord to connect the wires. Uh, We sold a handful of those, and and those of you who did purchase one, keep me updated on what you think of the drum. You can hit me up at the Drum Factory Direct Instagram page or mine, which is Mike Dawson Drums. Or you can email, as always, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. I really want to know how that drum does for you. Um, any feedback you have would be much appreciated. The drum is still available. We still have several left, but the special is over. But you can still get that drum, which is still in a pretty credible deal for, I believe, it's $349.99. Um, what else is new? Oh, this is pretty cool. Um, Deerhoof, the super cool, what do you call them, alternative rock band. They put out a track, a new single called My Lovely Cat. You can check that out now. But as I was investigating this, I went to their Instagram page and found a cool post of the drummer Greg Saunier tracking drums. And then it's in a carousel. So you get a video of him tracking drums and the drums just sound absolutely amazing. But when you scroll over, there's a list of all the gear that they used to record the drums. So you get a breakdown of what mics they're using, what preamps, what EQ, what compression, it's a, it's a nerd fest, so I, I absolutely love Greg's drum sound, 
and that was just a cool thing to discover. So go find that. It's probably like five or six posts down on the Deerhoof Instagram page. And go check out that track, My Lovely Cat by Deerhoof, featuring Greg Sonier on drums. All right, the last little bit here, which was pretty interesting. The legendary prog rock band Emerson, Lake, and Palmer is going to be doing some live shows. And if you know anything about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, you know that two-thirds of the band have passed away, unfortunately. So how are they doing this? Well, the drummer, Carl Palmer, he's taken his band out. and But what, what they're doing is they're playing Emerson, Lake, and Palmer tracks with video of Keith Emerson and Greg Lake playing on stage while Carl and his band play the music. Should be pretty interesting. So if you're a fan of the band, fan of prog rock, um, the tour is called Welcome Back, My Friends. You can check it out. Just search for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer tour dates. Go check them out. All right, this week's main topic, and we're going to be doing the second part of it next week. Um, I had a conversation with my old buddy, Mike Johnston, and we were just talking about some things, and then all of a sudden I was like, you know, I want to get you back on the show, so what's a gear topic that you're interested in? And he said, well, I don't know how to tell the difference between different metal snare jumps, so maybe we could do that. I was like, huh. Let's do it. So here's the main topic. It's me and Mike hanging out. We're checking out five different 5x14 beaded shell, which is Ludwig style snare drums. We have steel, two different types of aluminum, and two different types of brass. So this is a real nerd fest. It was great catching up with my old friend Mike. So let's check it out. Part one. One, two, three, four. I think it's the same tempo as the old days. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only tempo I know. <laughs> Do you know what that song? tempo is? Nope. Nope. Yeah. I, don't even, I wouldn't even be able to venture a guess. You know, I will admit when I was doing the uh, the grooves for the snare drums, I went through your Instagram page. And what tempo does Mike play most often so I can make it most familiar for him? <laughs> you, you, I, I won't call out any names, but in the past, you would always alert me to, yeah, he's cool, but he always plays at the same tempo. And I was like, <laughs> what? No, he's a G, man. And then I would look at it and I was like, Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. You 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 identify that stuff quickly, and and I definitely, I'll I'll set my metronome. I'm working on like a YouTube thing or Instagram thing. Maybe it's just playing, and I'll be like, let's try a little 95. And then at some point, I'm like, 110 it is. And I always, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't, I don't want to. I want to love some 95. Uh, it's good well, to see you, dude. Yeah, likewise. Like the good old days. Welcome to the what podcast are we doing? The Drum Candy Podcast. <laughs> it's it's all a blur now. It's all a blur. What is that shirt? No bull? Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Like every time I wear it, people think like, oh man, Mike's coming out with a t-shirt company. No excuses, no bull. It's just a workout company that honestly, they're the the only thing they make that I like is the fit of their t-shirts. Um, and I came straight from the gym to here. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm, I've still got my noble on. Shout out noble, noble or noble. No, is there it's, a SHIT on the back? <laughs> it's no, well, their full slogan because they're very hardcore is no bull, just the horns. So I'm just, all so, right then. All yeah. Right then. So, so I'm not proud to wear it, but it, it's the only thing that fits, man. I am such, I'm such in between medium and large that if I wear like certain shirts, they're like dresses on me, except for they're super tight on the arms. And then other ones are like a crop top and then baggy on the arms. And I'm just like, am I the most awkwardly shaped human being ever? I must be. So, but, but noble, they're a bunch of folks that get it. <laughs> 
<laughs> they're, they're all shaped like me, apparently. I have no idea how to transition. So snare drums. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, okay. So we so, have to get some background here. What yes. what started this conversation? I don't remember. You, I asked you what what's some gear thing you wouldn't mind talking about, and you said metal snare drums. Why? Yeah, mainly because I really do struggle. If if it's a blind, if it's the Pepsi challenge, and you're blindfolded, I really do struggle to tell any of them apart. And I think actually what really started it was me talking to you about why. Why does nobody else do nickel over brass? Is that oh, yeah. a Ludwig thing? Do they own copyright or patents to nickel over brass? Or are people just scared to step on Ludwig's toes? And it's like, look, that's the black beauty. We don't mess with it. And let's just go in a different direction and do chrome over brass or something over something. So that was kind of what started this. Um, and then, you know, you had said that um, Drum Factory Direct has like a nickel over brass, right? Or a black mm-hmm. nickel over brass. Um, and so... You know, I guess it was just that. I, I just I always wondered, is that some special magic recipe? Because when my campers come here, we do, a, you know, I have probably, I think in the, in the studio, I have about 35 snares. And then at some point, we do like a snare drum shootout just so they can hear the different drums compared to each other, especially with the same mics. Um, I think that's really important is a lot of times when you go on YouTube and you're like, I'm going to check out a Ludwig Black Beauty versus a Gretsch Chrome Over Brass. Well, it's two different companies that did the videos. Two different miking techniques, different rooms, different drummers. It's really not a fair comparison. Where here, we can try them all out with me playing them, with my mics, and nothing changes. It's all in the same 20 minutes, just like you did with these snares. So it's a really good comparison. So anyways, I just was kind of curious, uh, back to the camper thing, they always pick out the Ludwig Black Beauty, like it's some holy grail snare. And I think it sounds good, but it, it truly is not my favorite. And but But that being said... All of my favorite drums are either 14 by 5 or 14 by 5.5, and, and my mm. Ludwig Black Beauty is a 6.5. So I've never thought I don't like the Ludwig Black Beauty. I just thought, like, that drum, I like it in a different setting. If I was touring again, hitting the snot out of the drums, that would probably be my drum for sure. But the way I play now, it's just not my favorite. But anyway, so we started talking about that, and you were like, man, I've got chrome over aluminum. I've got them all. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I was also telling you, I don't know what these are called. Like cr- chrome over aluminum. What's that called? <laughs> Does it have a name? Is it chromoumium? Uh, superphonic. Is what that's, that's oh, that's what a superphonic is? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, they just throw phonic at the end of anything. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I'll, so I'll set up what, what the experiment was now. So I had... Um, I had four drums that were almost identical, and I had to actually had to buy one. So this is going to be a good test of whether or not I keep the drum that I purchased. Okay. Um, I won't say which one I purchased yet, but um, so I had what I have. So they're all I have mostly Ludwig and metal. So I figured we got to go with the Ludwig style. So it has a, a center bead. I have a Superphonic. I have an Acrylite. I have a chrome over brass. I have a black nickel over brass, which isn't a Ludwig, but it has the same shell. Okay. Um, and then chrome over steel. So they're all, I'll just grab one of them. Does this chrome over the, steel have a name? No. I mean, it was the Ludwig rocker. That oh, was okay. the, the okay. 90s snare. The rock. So there's a superphonic. Okay. 5 so by 14 so superphonic is probably what most of us might have encountered in like school band. At least that looks exactly like my school band snares. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. This is the superphonic. Okay. Oh. He's bending. This is the rocker. 
Yeah, we had the rocker. Yeah, so it's I mean, they, all, they steel, both like, they both steel aluminum. Okay. Um, okay, so what did I do? I um, get back on the mic here. I had I wanted to be as as meticulous as possible, so I took all the hoops off, all the wires off, all the heads off. Because some of them had like 1.6 millimeter hoops, some of them, one of them had die cast hoops. Okay. So I got fresh 2.3 triple flange hoops for all the drums. This is why you're you, buddy. <laughs> I would have done it with, I would have been like, yeah, one of them's got a broken bottom head, let's use it. <laughs> I love it. I put 16 strands steel wires, I figured okay. less wires so we can hear more shell would be important. Okay. Plus Ludwig traditionally sent their drums with 16 strands. Uh, just a generic drum factory direct head, so a, a standard snare side and a standard 10 mil coated batter. Um, I used the same exact same cord for the wire, so it's the white cord. Oh <laughs> of course you did. I, I, I was thinking about putting the same throw-offs, but the whole spacing wasn't consistent to do that. So okay. the variable is the throw-off, so you have to kind of ignore maybe some of the snare response in these recordings a little bit. Um, and then what else did I do? I tuned them all as absolutely identically as I possibly could. Okay. Bottom head was F sharp. Top head, I started high at F sharp and then went down a step. No, I started high at A sharp, down to G sharp, down to F sharp. So we have three tunings that are still within the medium to high range. Because okay. that's Because I think once you get below that, it becomes... A specialty sound, you got to start taping it up and do all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff. So they're as absolutely identical <laughs> as possible. Wow. The Acrolyte obviously is an eight lug. All the others are ten lug. The the Black Beauty replica is the only one with two lugs. Oh wow! Okay. So, so and what others. are are the others called Imperial lugs or what are those called? The well, there's a combination. Imperial lugs are these. Okay. Superphonic. Yep. It's like the high-end Ludwig. Then there's the... This is how you can tell an entry-level Ludwig is the bowtie lugs. Bowtie. Okay. So Acrolyte so, and Rocker has bowtie. Yep. Got it. Okay. Those are all 10 lug. So and I, I drove myself nuts. I put the heads on it. I tuned them. I let them sit for like two days, retuned them. I tried to be as absolutely right. nerdy as possible. So <laughs> I just hope that... I hope you did this for the sake of the episode and not I, – I hope I didn't cause you this much work by being like, man, I'm kind of interested in metal snares. Later, bro. And then you're like, cool, that's the next 20 hours of my life. <laughs> Thanks, Johnson. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is my job, but also it's fun and it's weird. And and I think I came to the conclusion that what I expected was – I mean – well, I guess we'll get to that conclusion at the end. Okay. But I know which drum playing it. I felt like that's the one I would use. Got it. So I don't know if it translated to the recording because I haven't listened to them yet. I, you know, the the one question I have without spoiling because we haven't listened to these together. And by the way, for everyone that's listening at home, uh, Dawson put these into a Dropbox folder all with very cool <laughs> names. Like <laughs> DGODG. So literally he leaned on the keyboard. That's all he yeah, did. Yeah, that's and, all I did. Because I can see like one has a lot of E's and P's, one has a lot of P's and H's. <laughs> so he leaned on the keyboard and that became the name. So even when we're listening, we don't know what we're listening to. That's the I whole point clue. is, can we tell what these are? 
he also did this test long enough ago that he doesn't know what any of these are. And then we have videos that we'll watch later. So we kind of know, oh, okay, that's what I thought. And I, I got to be honest, I from the tests that I've done here, it's really hard because all the tests I've ever done here, I can see the drum. I know exactly, oh, that's a 14 by 5 ANF raw brass versus a 1970s Gretsch chrome over brass. But I can't get the fact that I know what those drums are out of my head. So this will be a <laughs> real blind test where we just have no idea and we have to be honest about what we hear. Yeah, I don't think the point should be to guess. It's more like just take notes. How's you know What kind of attack does it have? How long does it ring out? How fast does it die off? What kind of overtones are in there? I didn't hit any rim shots. Maybe I might have snuck one in by accident, but... Everything is dead center as much as possible. Uh, so you've got five notes with the snares off, five notes with the snares on, and then four bars of a groove or something like that. I try to play as consistently as possible in this, um, so I have no identifiers. So I, I won't hear anything like, "Oh, I remember doing that on that drum." Okay. Um, yeah. So it's about as nerdy as we can get. Do you want to? You want to start with one of these? Yeah. Let's start. Um, I mean, since. Since they're all named and Wave and Parker, why don't we just go top down? Alphabetical order. This is D God Goig. <laughs> all right. Man, uh, first of all, it's so weird to have a signature wood snare because I gravitate so much towards metal snares. As soon as I heard it, I was like, that's awesome. That sounds mm. like a snare. Um, one thing that I think a lot of younger, by younger, I mean how long they've played, but younger drummers don't realize is how much overtones actually get eaten up by 
band instruments, like by playing with a band. So when I hear overtone, I never think, go grab a gel, shut that down. It's like, that that won't even show up. Like, mm-hmm. that's the life of the snare. I love that stuff. So the first thing I thought was the the purity of the overtone. There was nothing weird about it. It was the exact same. The overtone was the pitch of the snare. It just faded off. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was, it was like probably the cleanest overtone that I could ever imagine. It was beautiful. I noticed, um, I mean, it's weird because it's the first drum, but uh, long sustains. I felt like the sustain rang through the entire time. So, yeah. so the, the, the release or decay was would have been way at the end. And it felt pretty big and full for a 5x14 to me. Yeah, and, and I, I definitely could hear that the snares were, and that's one thing that I've always thought about Ludwig. So this makes me think that even though we're not guessing which drum it is, I don't think it's the um, kind of Black Beauty replica because um, that's one of the things that Ludwig snares do so well is they're so snappy. There's so much snare no matter what you're doing. Um, But it is crazy how much the drum takes shape based off the tuning. Because by the time you got to medium-low, if somebody walked into a music store and and they were brand new to drums and they hit that drum, they would have no idea what that drum sounds like tuned up high. Mm-hmm. It's a different beast altogether. Oh yeah, should I should talk about the mic? So there's there's a um, small diaphragm condenser over top of the snare, probably three and a half feet above. There's a SM57 on top in the normal position, and there's another uh, small diaphragm condenser two inches away from the bead of the shell, like aimed right at the bead of the shell. Wow! So we're getting as much of the shell in the sound as possible, and I mixed it pretty balanced. Everything is hitting the same. The same, I think it was like minus twenty in in logic. Any negatives stand out to you on that drum? Um, I mean, I would have to, especially if I was going to go lower. I would definitely want to tame some of that sure. sustain, depending on on the gig. If I was playing a loud gig, then who cares? But the gigs I'm doing more recently, it's a little bit more controlled, and with a close mic on it, that overtone could have been maybe too pure and a little bit too. Conflicting yeah. with what's okay. happening musically. Good point. So that's something to think about, but we'll see what happens with the other four here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we, on to, we on to number two? This is Epgelk. Epgelk. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Epgilk, what do you think? I I think that she means well, <laughs> but I can't take her to the dance. I no? actually do hear quite a difference. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah. what are you noticing? Um, I One, I felt that it was a little bit choked at the higher tuning compared to the first drum. Um, not quite as much when you played the groove, but just in the little single notes. Um, it just seemed like it couldn't reach its maximum potential. Then the drum came alive in the medium and medium low tuning. But I really noticed, especially in the medium tuning, that's the opposite of the overtone I heard in the first snare. That's got like a a pitch bend somewhere, like a little wobbly overtone. Um, not wobbly like out of tune, just it has like, I don't know how to express it other than it's it's more wobbly. It's not as pure. Mm-hmm. That was my that notes was, as well. What? Yep, more more complex overtones, but not as like pure and singy, and much now we're faster. Judging wine. Yeah, <laughs> much faster and drier. I thought the short sustain. Yes. Now, I have a. Uh, this is the only one that I'm going to guess. I think. I think this is the Acrolyte because of that pitch bend and its eight lugs. That's my my guess. Okay. Because there's okay. fewer lugs, so that means the head is less consistently tuned. You know. Got it. Got it. That's my guess and just the dryness of it. But I have no idea. That could be any any one of these five. Yeah. <laughs> I would so funny. The first drum I would have fun playing. The second drum I think would sit in the mix better because it just hits and quits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. kind of my guess, but for sure. Yeah, I it's it, it's such a weird thing, especially like the position I've been in for the last almost decade now of ninety eight percent of my drumming happens by myself, you know, or the recording of it is always by itself. If anything, maybe there's a drumless track, but that track was basically designed to be so a drummer could play over it. The drums are going to sit high in the mix. So everything has to sound right all by itself. You know, at least that's where my mind first goes, because that's what I'm doing normally. Um, But I also know from spending time in studios that Sometimes when I just think the drums can't possibly sound any worse, the producer's like, well, come into the control room. And then I'm like, mm. how does it sound so good? <laughs> right. well, you're sitting in a very different position than all of my microphones. And <laughs> and it's being swallowed up by different things. So, yeah, I I do like the snare, but it's, it's definitely 100% to me different than the first snare. I definitely can tell a difference. All right. Let's see if that continues with drum number three, shall we? All right. Well, I'm not this scared. is... This is folk rock. (laughs) First of all, it's not folk rock. I mean, it is, but it is P-H-O-K-R-H-K. So it's it's basically the Norwegian spelling. It's folk rock. (laughs) It's a little bit of folk rock. Dot wave. Uh, Here we go.
right, what do you think of Fork Rock? <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's weird because I actually feel like, and I would have to A-B them, but I feel like the higher tuning of that was higher pitched. And since I know you tune them exactly the same, the shell must have some sort of higher characteristic to it. Like the, the high tuning almost reminded me of like a Chad Sexton vibe. Like it mm-hmm. sounded high. Um, one, now we're back to a pure overtone to me and snappy snares. But I also, I think I liked so far out of all of them, I liked the low medium tuning out of this drum um, more than the the first two. Mm-hmm. What did you get out of it? Yes. Yeah, so, so the tuning was, was weird. So I made sure that the fundamental note of each drum was exactly the same when I started. Okay. So I could, and which was really strange because then I could go to the tension rods and sometimes they wouldn't be the same. So there's, wow. there's definitely something at play here with the physics okay. of the metal. So I can guarantee you that the fundamental of all of these was A sharp, G sharp, F sharp. But whatever the mics picked up might be reading something slightly differently. Yeah. I mean, and I just went through that with a, a buzz roll test I did for YouTube where. It was crazy how much the different shells, and they were all tuned the same, like dropped and, you know, and the pitch would go all over the place. Um, now, obviously, some of them were actually different depths, so I expect that. But with the ones that were the same depth, it was like that drum produces a higher fundamental note somehow mm-hmm. to the ears than this other drum. But yeah, for that one, I don't know. I, I felt like it was high in the high tune or higher in the high tuning, but it wasn't choked. Um, I don't know. To me, that was almost like, generically good you know Mm. what i mean it was like cool good snare drum it was actually almost what i was going for when i designed my snare which was like i almost just needed to do its job and to me that drum so far has the least amount of character but it just does its job and it's you know that that's one of those drums that'll never embarrass you whatever that is yeah i felt the same i felt like it's comparable to walnut for me where like the annoying mids are just kind of not there. It's yeah. nice, nice and bright, but also big and beefy in the low end. And I certainly I can't can play wait that to drum. find out what these are. <laughs> I can't wait. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store, celebrating its 40th year in business. Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. All right, we'll wrap up that segment next week, but for now, let's move over to our featured interview. All right, my good friend Tom Went is back. This time he is interviewing the living legendary modern jazz drummer, Kenny Washington. I'll let Tom do all the introductions, so here we go. Hey, everybody. Thomas Went back with you, guest hosting the Drum Candy podcast once again today for Drum Factory Direct. And today you're in for a real treat. I have the pleasure of spending some time with a very dear friend of mine, also a great mentor of mine as well, the great Mr. Kenny Washington. Kenny is on several hundred recordings and has played with so many of the great masters of this music. It's going to be a lot of fun to spend some time talking with him about uh, his incredible career. So let's get started. 
All right, we want to welcome everybody to a a brand new episode of the Drum Candy Podcast, and today is uh, is going to be a real treat because we're going to be spending some time with uh, one of the great modern day masters of not only the drums but of this great American music. Welcoming the fantastic Kenny Washington to the episode, Uncle Wash. Thanks for making it, man. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for inviting me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, man, it's it's our pleasure. So there there are a lot of different kind of drummers who check out these podcasts. And so just just to get everybody on the same page, let's go all the way back for you, man. You're you're a native New Yorker. You were born in Brooklyn and you grew up in Staten Island. That's that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, man, and you you come from uh, you come from a really musical family. Your brother is an accomplished bassist, and your sister is an accomplished violinist who teaches a lot. How how did you come to the drums, man? How did you first pick up a pair of drumsticks? Well, I mean, you know what it was is my father. My father was not a musician. He didn't play any instruments, but he played the record player, and that was very important for me. So growing up. There was always music on, you know, and I used to like to hang out with him. And see, so on Saturdays, you know, he didn't go to work on Saturdays and Sundays. He'd have the turntable playing records. And then, you know, so I would just hear these fantastic records, man. I mean, um, and he had a hell of a record collection, too. I mean, he didn't have as many things as I had. But he had the creme de la creme, you know. So if it was swing, he had the best of the swing records. It would be bebop. He had the the prime choice Charlie Parker records and Dizzy Gillespie records. And see, so I was able to um, listen to listen to that that all this kind of music, man. And I was very fortunate to have a father who 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 um, who you know said. Check this out, man. That was his whole thing. Check it out. And and uh, so what happened was I heard Ahmad Jamal's record at the Pershing. You know, and I heard Vernel Fournier, the great drummer. I heard him playing brushes and that was it for me. I said, man, how do you do that? I want to I want to know how to do that. And, you know, of course, I was bitten by the jazz bug then, you know, um, and I wanted to play the drums from from as far back as I can remember. I wanted to play the drums. I wanted to do this for a living. Yeah. Yeah, man. So those first days playing, did you did you just start on your own or did you start taking snare drum lessons? How did you how, how did you get into learning it? I didn't take I didn't take lessons until many years later. Um, I started out playing by ear copying off the records you know and like i had like i told you my father had the records and so you know i really got into the drummers and i had a different hero every month <laughs> you know like i went through all these guys to this day you put any one of them on i can tell you who it is right there i know what makes them tick yeah. you know which is very important you know but so so at that point, you know, I was just playing by ear, copying and trying to get the sound. This is what I always tell my students, the sound, get that sound. And, you know, I was listening to all these great rhythm sections, you know, O.C. Johnson and Milt Hinton, 
you know, with Hank Jones and Barry Galbraith or Philly Joe and the Philly Joe Jones and Paul Chambers and Red Garland, or, you know, uh, Lex Humphreys and Sam Jones with Dizzy Gillespie. These were whole high quality rhythm sections, man. I mean, Papa Joe and Milt Hinton, percussion and bass, you know. And so the, the quality is what got me. And like, so what I, I would just copy, try to copy and emulate what I heard. And I did that, I did that for quite some time, you know, practicing along with records. Yeah. It was a stereo. Back in the day, you had an amplifier. And the amplifier had a, what they called a balance. And you know, you could turn the right, you turn it to the right and you just get the right channel and the left channel would cut out. You turn it to the left channel, you get the left channel and, and, and the right channel would be out. So if I was fortunate, if it was a stereo record, like for example, it was a blue note record, the drums were always on the right channel. Rudy Van Gelder always had the drums on the right channel. That's how you know that your stereo is phased correctly. If it, you know, you're sitting in front of it, the drums are always on the right channel. So, or, or it could be any other company, you know, but sometimes they would pan the drums off to the right or it could be to the left channel. And that was great for me because I would turn that balance and turn the drum off and then see, so in that right channel, if the drums were on the left, I would turn it so I had the right channel, and it'd be Paul Chambers playing. But <laughs> you couldn't hear the drums on that channel. I mean, you know, you they were they. I mean, they would bleed through sometimes. But basically, depending upon how good the separation was when they did the recording, I could turn that thing off, and you wouldn't hear the drums. And I would sit there and turn the thing up, and I would practice and make believe I was playing with. Paul Chambers or make believe I was playing with Sam Jones, man, <laughs> you know, and so, and so I copied off the records, man, I mean, listening to the records. And the thing is, I did it because I liked it, man. You know, see, in schools now, I teach at two different schools. And at these schools, it's what I call their jam sessions and their cram sessions. <laughs> see, so you get to school and you know, you got to do this within a certain amount of time. You have to do this to get a grade. And, and you know, but see, they're going for a grade. For me, I liked it, man. I liked the way the music made me feel. And I would sit up there and pick that needle up and listen to that and say, man, listen. And I would just, and I would try to copy other stuff because I liked it. You know, it's the same thing with the, the, and not just the drum, because I can sing all the solos, all the other horn solos, everything, man. You yeah. know, because I liked it. But what I didn't realize is, what I didn't realize was that was good, man, for me, because I started finding out, I started realizing the bridge, where the bridge is. I learned tunes, the melodies. You, a drummer must be able to sing the melodies of these tunes. You must know the arrangements of these tunes. If you don't, it's over. <laughs> Flush the toilet. <laughs> the band doesn't have a chance, man. Yeah, you're right. Because you're running the band, man, and you got to know all that stuff. So, so you know, like these vocalists, you got to know the lyrics of the tunes, man. 
just just because you're the drummer, that doesn't that doesn't mean you don't have to learn that stuff. You got to know because that, then you learn understand how the tune is supposed to feel, how you, you know the message that the composer was trying to get across. And see, so I you know it's just because I liked it, man. You know, sure. and, and, and 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 you know it got to the point that you know I was copying off the records and see so. You know, my father decided, you know, that I, I should start taking lessons. So, and I couldn't read, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I. <laughs> well, let's, well, let's, 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 let's pick it up right there. So how, how did you learn to read and how did you learn to, to, to organize the rudiments and really learn the rudiments? Because that's, that's something that you're a stickler for these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, but see, man, listening, listening to all those drummers, man, every one of them every one of them had this together they had the hands this and again there's that word the sound mm -hmm. I like that sound man you know and i would sit up there listening to max or philly joe or big sid catlin or cozy cole those guys had chops man mm -hmm. and i wanted to play like that i didn't care what it took if i had to stand on my head and play the snare drum with my feet <laughs> If I could get that sound that Big Sid Cat got or, or, or Buddy Rich, the way, you know, the articulation. See, that's what got me, man. Is the how do they, they put this stuff together? And the, uh, the articulation and the clarity. I mean, the, and the, those cats, every, everything you hear Philly Joe play or A.T., or any of Shadow Wilson, any of those guys, man, man, you know, it's like, it's, 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 there's no slop. Where does that, where does that come from? Where, 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 where does a drummer develop that kind of clarity? Well, 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 they develop it from, from, from the rudiments. Mm -hmm. And all those guys, some more than others, had that basic training. And that's something that doesn't happen nowadays with the drummers that are out here now. Everybody's raving about a lot of these guys. They don't have any hands. They're sloppy. I hate sloppy drummers, man. I hate sloppy drumming. Yeah. You know, that's because of that sound. See, that sound got up here in the dome piece, man. <laughs> and that's gotten me into a lot of trouble over my career because if it didn't sound a certain way, I have a certain, you know, like, quality man i wanted to get to the quality of oc johnson and milt hinton and hank jones i'm still scratching to get to that kind of quality man where it, it's it's good man the sound it feels good they're swinging they're playing they're, they're playing well together you know those are the kinds of things that from listening to those records man that's in my dome forever sure so so so, so growing up you know, after a while, you know, my father said, well, you know, he said, you should start taking some lessons. So he taught. So so in Staten Island, you know, there ain't nothing happening in Staten Island. Man. But anyway, there was this place called um, uh, Peter Paratores. Well, I think his first name was last name was Paratore. In those days, in the 60s, man, they had like these mom and pop stores, you know, record stores. And this was a mom and pop music store. And you, you, they had instruments in there. And they also had people in there that were teaching the different instruments. And back in those days, in the 60s, man, New York was something else, man. I mean, because 
you know, these mayors like John V. Lindsay and these kinds of people, they were into this whole thing about keep your kids off the street and to keep them off the street, have them doing something. And see, so after school, they had these after school programs. So when school ended at three, when school ended at three, your butt didn't hit the outdoors. You went to you take art, you could take music, you could take, you know, gymnastics, whatever you wanted. And all you had to do was get a, um, uh, 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 you, you had to get permission from a legal guardian or your parents. And you're in, man, until about 5, 530. Mm-hmm. And those programs, man, were, were, were something else. They had serious teachers, man. I mean, really serious teachers. But besides that, my, my, you know, my father said, well, uh, he, he, he took me to one of these mom and pop music stores. And so um, there was this guy by the name of Dennis Kinney. D-E-N-N-I-S. His last name is spelled K-I-N-N-E. And they took me to him, and he's the one that started me on the uh, advanced techniques for the modern drummer, Jim Chapin's book. I had that book, but see, I couldn't read. So I had that book, which is a complicated book. To, to me, it's still the Bible of jazz drumming. I had that, and I had the, element, the elementary Rubank book. The white and blue covered book. There's also the the more advanced one is the it was like uh, uh, orange, I think, orange and white anyway. But I couldn't read, but I could play for what Rudy Collins, who was my next teacher and what these guys told Dennis Kenny told me years later, I, I guess they said, man, that I could play. But I could read any of this stuff. So, so, all right, the first, the first part of Jim Chapin's book, you know, it's got the triplets, the, the one bar exercises. Well, open up that book. I couldn't, I couldn't read any of that stuff. He starts playing it. I was able to play every one of those exercises. No problem. Feathering the bass drum and hi-hat on tune for playing the figures. But I couldn't read them. But I could hear it because I copied off of all those records. Sure. And all Jim Chapin did, all Jim Chapin did was was cop all the stuff that Kenny Clark and Max Roach and Big Sid. They should have gotten a piece of the rock, really. Truth be told. Big time. But, big time. <laughs> yeah. But that's the first book of its kind to show drummers and drum enthusiasts what was actually happening uh, with the, you know, independence wise. So anyway, this guy would play this stuff and I would hear it and I was able to play it right back. So then he says, uh, okay, he says, okay, great. Well, you know, run over, run over these and I'll see you next week for your next lesson. I think I used to go once a week or once every two weeks for lessons. I never practiced that stuff because you know what? From memory, I associated each one of those one bar exercises to a different drummer. Like, for example, being that, 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 I knew that's all right, Blakey. You know, there might be another one. 
He did that, he did that, he did that, he did that. Arthur Taylor. Sure. You know, and I and, and I can play them, man. You know, yeah. I can play them one after another. And I come back, play, I play them. Great, you know. But now, see, when we got to the summary exercise, that would kick my butt because <laughs> they had all the different things together, man. But then he would play that for me. I was able to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So, see, so, so when, so. So 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 when did you when did you actually learn how to read, man? <laughs> well, what happened what, what what happened was the next teacher I had was the great drummer by the name of Rudy Collins. For those of you all who are not familiar with Rudy Collins, he played with Dizzy Gillespie's quintet in the early to mid '60s. He made some records on the Phillips label. He also played with Herbie Mann. He played with Pete Brown. He played with Randy Weston. Uh, he played with Eddie Bonamere. He did a lot of stuff. Well, there was this program in Brooklyn called Muse, Brooklyn Muse. And this place was great, man. There's another free place. And Kenny Barron's older brother ran the jazz department. Bill Barron. Bill Barron. Great tenor player, man, and a great writer. Man, you talk about somebody that writes some hard music. Ooh, mm -hmm. hard music, man. Hard, but very good music, you know. Yeah. Um, Chris White was there. And see, so my father knew Rudy. They, I don't know, somehow or another, my father was at the, one of those clubs or something, and somehow or another, he and my father became friends, but they lost contact with each other. And I don't know how my father found out about this, about Brooklyn Muse, but he, uh, he showed me, he says, hey man, he says, there's this program in Brooklyn for the summer, you know, and Rudy Collins is down there, you know, teaching. It's free. He says, you want to go? I said, yeah. So I'm coming from Staten Island mm. to, to Brooklyn. Wow. That ass part of Brooklyn, too. Back then, man, people were getting shot every day. It was wild, man. And my mother wouldn't let me go. She said, oh, no, no he's not going down there. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, I don't want to be there. No, no, he's going to get. No, 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 no. And my father, man, thank God, man. He said he told he told my mother they had arguments about this, man. You know, my father said, "Listen, now I was a preteen. I was about, I was about ten, ten or eleven. I was a preteen. So then, my father says, let him go. He can't stay out here in Staten Island." There's nothing for him out here. He's got to learn how to travel on his own. Well, he'll get lost in the train. No, he's not going to get lost in the train because I'm going to take him out there. I'm going to show him. He needs to know how to get around in New York City. There's nothing for him in Staten Island. Staten Island doesn't have anything. Mm. He's got to travel. He's got to learn how to go out on his own. So they argued back and forth, and then, you know, so finally my father says, he, I'm sitting over there, and he, my father says, come here, man. He says, now, you know, out here in the city in Brooklyn, there's a lot of bad stuff going on, man. I'm just going to tell you, it's very bad out here. He says, now, uh, if you pay attention, and if you, as he said, keep your nose clean, and, it says, if you're looking for trouble, you'll find it out there. But if you mind your business and keep your nose clean, 
you'll be all right. Now, do you still want to go? I said, yeah. And he looked at my mom and said, let him go. <laughs> let him go. <laughs> so then he took me up there. He took me down to Brooklyn, showed me how to ride, showed me. That's how I started learning how to get around on the trains and everything, man. Sure. That was a big voyage for me, man, because like I said, I was about 10, 11, you know. That's pretty I, young, man. My huh? father was allowing me to put on my big boy pants, man. And, 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 and really, man, I mean, that was the best thing that he could do for me, man, you know. So anyway, I got to the first lesson, you know, because my father said, tell, tell, Rudy, tell Rudy who you are. Tell him who you are. And I got to the thing, and the first, the first thing he is signing people up. This is a new program, and I told him who he was, uh, who I was. He says, "How's your father, man?" I said, well, "He's doing all right. Great, man. Oh, man!" Because he told my father years before. He says, "If you ever have a son that wants to play drums, send him to me." You know, I mean, wow. my father didn't know that. So then, when he saw me, he says, "Wow, man, yeah." Say, oh, mate, come on in, man. So, yeah. So, then these were programs they would have advanced, they would have beginners program, they would have the uh, intermediate and advanced. And these are people with varying degrees of, of ability to play. Mm -hmm. you know? And so, I was in the advanced, but just to hang out with Rudy, I would come there early. Just, you know, and go from class to class, uh, beginners, intermediate, and advanced. And then what he would do, man, is he would, the, the advanced class, and he would show all the guys out. He said, okay, man, look, I'll see you all next week. And then he would lock the door, and then he would give me a, a private lesson, man. Wow. Wow. You know, and, and, and he would show me different things. And this is how the reading thing that's how the reading thing. See, because at this point, you know, he used to do a lot of Broadway stuff too. Yes, yes. You know, see, so you know, in the pits, you know, the Broadway pit, 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 pit things. He used to do a lot of different things, you know. And so, you know, uh, we started going through these books in the sync. You know, um, there was a book, man, that Alan Dawson had. It's a black-covered book. And it had these syncopation exercises in it. Berkeley had something to do with putting that book out. Man, I haven't seen that book in years. But anyway, mm -hmm. I had that book. And, and um, you know, he said, well, man, how's your reading? And so then he put some stuff in front of me, and I couldn't read it. And then he showed me the, the arrow system, the upbeats and the downbeats, you know, and how to, you know, he said, when you're getting the pinch, man, you know, and you know the end is here you know and he would have the arrows up arrows and down arrows yeah yeah so then that stuff was coming to me slow man but he was on my ass <laughs> he said listen man he said he says you can play he said man but you gotta be out you know you have to learn how to read you can't just get out here and just do anything mm. you have to learn how to read you're gonna need this and if it's the last thing I do, you're gonna learn to read, you're gonna you're gonna learn this stuff. Wow, man! And, and 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 so you know, but I was slow. I was still slow to learn. Then I got into high school, to high school of music and art. 
Incidentally, man, talking about Muse, you know whose house I used to pass every going to going to Muse. Um, I used to. You know whose house I used to pass every every Friday. Let me guess. Uh, Winton Kelly. Yeah, when he, <laughs> he took me to his house, man. Rudy took me to his house. I got a chance to meet him once. He was wow. a very nice man. You know, this is near the end of his life, man. You know. Wow. Funny thing, funny thing was that program, and you know, so I was cool the whole summer. I was straight, no problem traveling on my own, right? Yep. So the program ends in August. So then they start the fall program. So, of course, you know, I wanted to go to that also. But daylight saving time ends. Oh, man, yeah. By 5 o'clock, it is dark. That's right. And my mother, no, no. Because that, I mean, I'm, listen, man, that part of Brooklyn, was, was it Lincoln, Lincoln Place? Lincoln and, was it Lincoln and um, Bedford? Mm-hmm. Just dead man's land. Mm. Dead man's land. And after dark, now you go over there, there's a Starbucks there. And you see people there white walking their little poodles and stuff. <laughs> I ain't lying, man. Because I went back there, man, about two or three years ago, man. Just to, you know, just yeah. to brought back a lot of memories. People, you know, they had a, you don't have a Starbucks. Now, you know that neighborhood has changed because, you know, like 20, 25 years ago, Starbucks, they would have they, they would have taken Starbucks out, man. You know, there's no <laughs> kind of way, man. That whole neighborhood has changed. You talk about gentrification, gentrification man. The yeah. whole neighborhood has changed. Yeah. But but at any rate, so the, the fall comes around. Mother says, no, man, because... So I'd have to come in from school, or come into school from, from school at three o'clock, and then I'd have to go up there. See, so by four, four fifteen, four thirty, it's dark, man. It's getting dark, yeah. And by five o'clock, it is dark, and see, so then they had the beginners, the intermediate, and then advanced. And see, so my mother said, "No, Mm-mm. no, not this, no, not in the dark." Uh-uh. Yeah. So Rudy said, "Okay, I tell you what." I told him the situation, so then he said, I tell you what, if you get up here, when when we finish, because by the time they finished, I think they finished at 6.30, 7 o'clock, maybe a little bit later than that. So, you know, it's pitch black then. Yeah. Is I'll drive you back. I'll drive you. I got to come into the city anyway, because he, he, he would be going to his gig, you know. So he says, well, I got to go that way anyway. I says, I'll tell you what, I'll drop you off at Atlantic Avenue. So Atlantic Avenue is much more populated yeah. than Franklin Avenue. It's in a whole different neighborhood. Sure. The, the Long Island Railroad runs down there, plus all the trains, the two, the three, the four, and the five. Yep. So he would drive me to Atlantic Avenue, Atlantic, Atlantic and Flatbush. He would drop me off and then he would keep straight over the Manhattan Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge and I would take the train there and, and, and go on home. So my mother went for it. So so nice. I was able to do I was able to do that too. But anyway, when I got into high school, I was still slow to learn how to read, man. I mean, you know, and and uh I had this teacher by name, fantastic teacher. He's still around, uh Justin DeChocho. Yeah, I studied with him too. Yep. <laughs> 
He's fantastic, man. He I, is. I learned a lot from him, man. And so I was in high school in music, you know, which was a great place to be. Sure. So, you know, he he auditioned me. He auditioned me and so then I had the Jim Chamber book. So I played a few things out of there. So then he says, uh, great, great. Um, now that eighth note, does it fall on the downbeat or is it on the end? Three. <laughs> I couldn't really tell him. And he says, oh, I see. Ear reading. <laughs> Ear reading. You're going to start from the beginning of this book. Wow. <laughs> So, man, I mean, you know, and so so I had to, you know, I had to I had to learn, man. I mean, I had I had to learn. And and then as as I was in high school, uh, that high school, man, at that period, man, that was a hell of a period, man. I was in school with Steve Jordan, uh, Baylor Fleck, you know, the, the banjo player, Baylor Fleck and the Fleck Tones, yeah. Marcus Miller. Ray Chu, yeah, who was a percussionist. He did all kinds of stuff. Omar Hakim, right? Wasn't he with you? Omar Hakim was there too. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there were a lot of people, and Danny Druckmann, ah, of New York Philharmonic. He was there, and I got exposed to all these different, all these different, you know, uh, genres and styles of music. Because man, I just wanted to play bebop. Man, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. But being around, being around those guys, man, you know, especially those percussionists, man, that turned that turned my whole way of thinking around. You know, these guys were way advanced, man, much more advanced than me, at least in certain things. Anyway, I mm -hmm. found out later. I, I found out later. Mark Sherman was there. You know, the vibraphonist, and you know, he was there too. He he says to this day, he says, man. We couldn't believe it, man. You could play all the Philly Joe Jones solos by heart. <laughs> He's exaggerating, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, you know, but 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 um, but being around those guys, it showed me a whole nother side. Yeah. Of of the drums, and this is how I got into the the, the whole Wilcoxon thing, because those guys. Druckmann and all those, they had Rand Steiger, he was another one there. He's a professor out in California, percussion and electronic music, I believe. But all those guys, they had Ted Reed syncopation. They had um, um, uh, 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 Saron's book, Portraits and, Portraits and Rhythm, the red covered book. Yep. And all that stuff, man. And it was practicing. They were practicing classical, classical excerpts. And, you know, Danny Druckmann was practicing that the beginning of uh, Porgy and Bess, you know, the, the xylophone, but yeah. little, 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 you know, and I got exposed to all that kind of stuff, man. And then um, they had a percussion ensemble there, too. And Ray Chu left school this cat was so bad i mean he played piano he, he played he played piano he played drums and he played mallets as well mm, yeah. very talented man he left school to become musical director of ashford and simpson mm, wow man <clears throat> so when he left school 
they needed an extra percussionist. They needed an extra drummer. So then Justin says, well, look, man. So he formed this, you know, on his own time, man, he wasn't getting paid extra for this. He formed this, this percussion ensemble. You know, and they would play, you know, uh, Edgar Varese's Ionization, and, you know, his 20th century hard ass stuff, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so, but I wasn't a part of that, you know. But then when Ray Chu left, they needed they needed the extra they needed the extra player. Yeah. So Justin said, "Man, come on up after school, man. You know, I want you to play some. We have some parts. I need you to play them. Ray's not here." So I said, "Okay." So I get upstairs after school. There's Danny Druckmann and all the badasses. You know, they're warming up. <laughs> and see, so they put some piece. I don't know. I don't know. It was some piece they put in front of me. And I opened it up because I saw it was like a bar, a one bar, a four, four time, a bar, a five, four time and a bar, three sixteenth time. I had never seen anything like that. My eyes said, no, 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 Put the sticks back in the bag. <laughs> I was out of there. <laughs> Man, by the time my butt hit the door, now Justin, they were warming up and Justin was writing something on the board or something. And just as my butt was leaving right out of the door, man, I had almost made it, man. <laughs> Came to the door and grabbed me. He said, man, where you going? I said, listen, man, I can't play this. I can't play this, man. I can't play this. Way beyond me. I can't play it. Forget it, man. Guess yeah. somebody else to do this. He said, sure, you can play it. If you couldn't play it, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't ask you to come here in the first place. He said, man, don't worry about it. Everything is, it, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. I'm, I'm, I'll show you how to play this. I said, listen, man, it'll take me one year to learn one bar. <laughs> I have all these other guys waiting for me to learn one bar. Forget it. Forget it, man. It's over. No. He says, you can play this stuff, man. If you couldn't play it, you wouldn't be here. And you're going to learn how to play this. See, so get back in there. You're going to learn. He said, man, don't worry about it. And he said something that I'll never forget. He says, the quarter note always remains constant. So in other words, one, you are one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And so in six, eight time, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, that, that, that half, the dotted quarter note is like the quarter note in four, four time. Right. So it's constant. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. So, you know. And and I'll never forget that man. That was that was that was brilliant of him to say it, say that to me. So, so I I got I, okay. So I came back in there, and and you know I had to learn that stuff. And then and then by this time I had, you know, now being in school, I got sort of kind of close to Danny Druckmann, and I you know because I used to see them around, but I didn't really know them. Mm-hmm. You know, but now I'm in this percussion ensemble, and then I end up being in the what they call the straight uh, uh, when the senior win ensemble. So, so I'm always around him, you know, and around these guys, these percussion guys, man. That you know, they know a whole bunch of stuff, and I started checking them out. These guys were talking about they would have these serious discussions on how many buzzes per stick for a good roll. I never heard nothing about that. But <laughs> and so watching them and you know I mean just things would happen just watching what Danny Druckmann would do how you play on a snare drum or approach like a bass drum 
I'm talking about a concert based drum. Sure. How to play the drums, certain spots to play the drums for certain sounds, for certain ensembles, for certain sounds in this part of the piece. And mm -hmm. what kind of triangle beater to use? Sure. You know, uh, for, I mean, these guys are serious. They count a hundred bars, man, and a hundred and first bar to play one quarter on, on that on, on that triangle. It's got to be right there. Yep. You know, and, and this is the kind of stuff that I was really getting exposed to. See, so I was learning a lot. And see, so when I got in, I sort of kind of got into that stuff. I should have got into it a little bit more, maybe. But <laughs> I mean, but, but I got enough of it. To the point, man, like where, uh, you know, I um, I was one day I was playing or practicing on a snare drum, and you know they these guys they were playing on different parts of the snare drum for different sounds. It was pianissimo or whatever, and I was practicing, and I started hitting the different parts of the drum, and then I realized. Said, man, that's how Big Sid Catlett and Papa Joe Jones and Cozy Cole were able to get all those different sounds out of one drum. I mean, the snare drum can be your mounted tom tom. It can be your floor tom tom also. Right. You know. So so, and then and then it man, it hit me, man. You talking about an epiphany? Is that the word, man? You know, is it's all connected, man. Yeah. In one way or another, all of this stuff is co connected. And, and I said, you know what, man? If you learn this stuff, you'll be able to play better bebop. You'll be, the, you'll be a better jazz drummer. If you, learn, if you learn this stuff, if you learn this, you'll be a better, th this will hopefully make you a better jazz drummer. Absolutely. That's Man, how you know? And I realize this with Philly Joe, oh, Elvin Jones too. Mm -hmm. all did the same thing, and that, man, that was a big thing for me. And then that same teacher that I had in Staten Island when I was like a preteen, I went back to him. Mm. I went back to him because see, by since now being around Danny Druckmann and Mark Sherman and all these guys, I thought I wanted to be a percussionist. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. A tall tale, man. I mean, you know, had to get all the things. So anyway, I went back to him because Dennis Kenny could read anything, man. I don't care what it is. You could splatter some stuff on the wall, man. He read that. This guy could read anything, man. So I went back to him and I said, "Listen, man, I want to learn how to read better. I want to learn how to read better." I said, man, I can, I, I, I all that's the, the jazz stuff. Yeah, man, I, I know about all that. Or at least I thought I knew about it, you know. <laughs> I, I had a long way to go back then, see. But I was like 17, 18. I said, man, I don't want to learn that. I can get that on my own. I want to learn how to read better. I want to learn, I want to go through that book, Portrait to Rhythm, that Sterone book. I want to learn through that. I, I want to, I want to do, this is what I want to do. And he, he says, Okay, but I wouldn't recommend I wouldn't recommend uh, Portraits and Rhythm right off. There's another book that you should that you should work on. We can work on it, and then we'll go to Portraits and Rhythm. It was this book 
uh, it was, there was this book by Garwood Garwood Whaley. Yeah. And and it and I saw the book because man, I gotta I I gotta get a copy of that book because my I mean because my book was long gone, man. I mean you know I destroyed. It. Yeah, I went through one of his books too. And and it had all these designs on it. And yeah, it that's it. It was, like a, it, it was like it was it was a book of of snare drum things. Etudes, yeah, yeah. Etudes with with with, with different time changes. Exactly. But it wasn't as it wasn't quite as tough as Saron's book. Yeah, yeah. He says, "Let's go through this book. I think you should go through this book first, and then we can go into Saron's book." What do mm-hmm. you think about that? I said, "Well, okay, man." And that's exactly that's what that's exactly what happened, man. I mean, see, so you know, it took me it took me a long time to 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 really get that stuff together. Of course, the the, the idea of being a classical percussionist that went way out the window, man. I mean, because you know, I don't know how those guys do it. It's hard enough to keep the snare drum together, and then then also to learn to learn to play marimbas and xylophone and all that other stuff, man. I mean, sure, you know, sure. more, more than a notion, man. You know. So 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 let's 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 talk for 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 a second about about Will Coxon and rudimental drumming because we, yeah, okay, that's what I had to say. That's what I was. Oh, going go to ahead. That I, I'm glad you brought that because I got sort of kind of off the beaten track, man. That's all right. Um, what happened was I found out about Will Coxon through Justin DiCiocio. I saw Druckmann and those guys. They had that book. I had never seen that book before, but I had I had Justin DiCiocio. Not I had him for for homeroom you know when you get to cool yeah so i had him in homeroom he just happened to be a homeroom teacher and i had him. one day he comes in the class i'm already there he walks in and he says hey man you know about this book and he shows me you, you know modern rudimental swing circles i said no he says well you do now Plop, plopped it on the table he says this is where fit. This is where Philly Joe Jones and all the guys got a lot of stuff from. You know, he said, "Check, check it out." Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of it. Now I couldn't, man. I mean, like rolling in rhythm. Man, I used to hear those guys. Man, they rattle that bad boy off just like it was just boom. You know, man, I couldn't play that like that, man. I couldn't play that stuff like that. Yeah. I had to do it slow. I had to figure it out my own way. And this is how I started with what I call bar, my bar by bar method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the only way I could get it, man, was to break it down one bar at a time. You play one bar at a time, you play maybe a, give yourself a bar rest. And you play the same bar again until you get it. And you want it to be even, accents up here, unaccented notes down here for articulation. Yep. You can hear the difference between the two without smashing the drum. Now and that was the beginning. I mean, that's and and then so then I would I would break it down bar by bar, sometimes beat going from one beat to the next. Sure. Here's another short lesson I did. This one is similar to last week, which was on how to build up a a controlled, accurate single stroke roll. 
This time we're doing the same basic process with the double stroke roll. So here is the double stroke roll builder. In order to play a really clean, strong, confident double stroke roll, you need to make sure that every note is clear, but at the same time, you don't want to be muscling it out with your wrist the whole time. So it's a delicate balance between wrist and fingers and rebound. The best way that I've found to build it up is just gradually add a double stroke to the measure each time until you eventually get to a whole measure of doubles. So we're gonna play eighth notes, one and two and three and four, and alternating, and just add a double every couple of repeats. One, two, three, four. Now at that tempo, it's mostly wrist and fingers and just a little bit of rebound. But once you start increasing the speed is when you gotta start utilizing the bounce a little bit more. So let's try 140. One, two, three, four. That still felt like I could play it mostly with wrist and fingers, a little bit of rebound. So I bet if we go to 160, now I'm gonna to have to let it bounce a bit. One, two, three, four. Give that exercise a try. Again, be patient with it. Start slowly, gradually increase the tempo as you get comfortable playing super precise and super articulate doubles. And then let your hand do what it needs to do to go from maybe primarily wrist to wrist and fingers, to maybe wrist fingers with a little bit of rebound, to more of a relaxed stroke where you're utilizing the rebound naturally. Let your hand figure it out on its own, but make sure you're always listening for clarity and precision. Good luck. Let's get back with my buddy Brandon Green to talk a little bit more about drum mechanics. This is part three in a series, so if you missed the previous two, go back two episodes with part one, part two. This is part three of drum mechanics with Brandon Green. What's the next piece that you would add to the kits? You've got your bass drum, hi-hat, snare drum set up. So the floor tom is an easy one because it follows all of the same rules of the hi-hat. Uh, I just did a fun little video on this, but like super simple to figure out where your floor tom and or side snare drum should be. Keep your elbows fixed at your side. Get your elbows to, relatively speaking, a 90 degree angle, something where you're not going to hit anything. Hold drumsticks with the desired technique. And then just keeping your elbows in firm. If you externally rotate your arms, 
and then internally rotate each arm, see if the drum you're trying to hit is within that position. So as much as this seems very robotic if you're watching the video, if I externally rotate this arm and internally rotate this arm, I would like the floor tom, if I put both sticks down, to be in this position. Now, I'm never going to hit the snare, the floor tom on the left with my left arm. Sorry, floor tom on the right with my left arm from this position. I will be reaching over to get there a little bit. But what this starts to do is it starts to make sure that I have to do the least amount of trunk rotation, least amount of motion to actually hit the center of the drum. And that's really the key. I mean, it's if you want an example of what I mean would have to be turning too far, deliberately place your floor tom six inches further away than you would. And you would see that you have to actually trunk rotate and turn over there. So arms in close, rotate over and make sure at least the tip of the sticks can hit the drum. So when you're actually in performance mode, you don't have to think about it nearly as much. Now, for anyone who's not watching the video to point out, you're saying rotate just the arm. So your your upper body torso doesn't move. Yeah, so that. very strictly, the assessment is keep your elbows at your side, hold the drumsticks, turn your hands so you're holding the sticks with whatever technique you're doing. Don't move your trunk. Don't move anything. Just rotate your arm internally towards your torso and then reach out as far as you can, keeping your shoulders and trunk as still as you can. In my opinion... Instruments that are going to have 80% or more playtime should be within that field of area. So if we get a bit excited and we do another joint motion, like we turn our spine a little bit, we're in a much safer spot than if it's something extreme. The really common example actually is if, if you have a 14-inch and a 16-inch floor tom, that 14-inch should be as close to you so you don't have to work very hard to hit the center of it. That 16-inch, it's very unlikely your left arm from this example is going to be able to internally rotate enough to get the 16-inch floor tom that's away from you. If you were going to practice doing single strokes and you do it from your drum throw sight spot and you go to the floor tom and you actually practice playing single strokes over there, you're going to feel you have to turn and move your shoulders. That instrument, in my opinion, if you're going to be getting a lot of playing time, I would find another position for it, perhaps a left side floor tom or a rack tom. Don't have it that far over there if you're going to be playing it for a lot of your gig because that's where back issues start to pop up. All right, so this this is the the next confusing bit for me. Like, I know the ride symbol should be the next thing because you're going to be play it the most. But it's there's a restriction inherently. Let's say you have two rack toms. I don't play two rack toms for that reason that I need the ride symbol to be in a comfortable spot somewhat in front of me. Yeah. But let's say you have to have two rack toms. Would it be better to go higher, closer to the center? or lower further to the right, or is Love there some it. other position? Love it. Uh, I like to visualize NASA star controls, like when someone's in a space shuttle, when they're thinking about all the other stuff. Because one thing they did that was super cool is if you, like, not joking, you look inside of a space shuttle, right? The buttons that are like right in front of them are like kind of on a gradient angle. So when they put their hands up, they don't have to move very far. And as they get closer and further away, the things are getting flatter <laughs> so their arms can stay closer to their body. And I think this is kind of what's cool about high symbols placement kind of coming back is because I think through we went through like this generation in the 90s and 2000 where like low flat symbols were cool. I know, you know, they look kind of cool. So to answer your question, I am a double rack tom person. Uh, I love it. And I play with two rides most of the time uh, because I don't play any actual gigs and I'm just kind of like that drummy guy right now. It's kind of fun. <laughs> and when I think about like that placement, it is in that kind of NASA star control idea where following those rules, if I have, to your examples, the ride low and to the side or kind of middle and higher, 
forgetting about just telling you my opinion, if we go back to that assessment of holding and we do that floor tom assessment, well, if I turn my arm out to the side and I have it low, you don't have to try that hard. If you keep your arm close and you turn out as far as you can, you're going to feel that tension across the front of your shoulder. You're getting close to the end range of motion. This is one of the extremes of the Goldilocks zone. We, we can't go any further. The car door can't open any further. So if I'm operating from this extreme, even if it's comfortable-ish, and I'm playing a ride there, and I'm playing a jazz gig, or I'm playing something that requires, again, a lot of playing time, you're going to get tired faster. Those internal feelings of like, hey, I don't feel any tension here. Hey, I feel some tension here, but it's okay. That tension feeling is your body internally telling you, we can't go much further. Tension is the language of the body. So I would encourage that closer to center-ish, higher-ish position following those same rules. And so you can kind of see, oh, you can't, I mean, if you're watching the video, I got like a drum set behind me, but that's basically what I've got is I've got the ride relatively centered, kind of high. And it's almost that if I follow what I said with the snare drum, there's a slight angle on the snare drum, slight more angle on the rack toms, and then a slight more angle on the cymbal. And forgetting about the different materials, it's kind of following that NASA idea where there's kind of this progressive going up. Flat, little more angle, little bit more angle. But again, I mean, Mike, it's a great question. It, I would say follow with what your body feels the most comfortable. Like that's the greatest thing. And if we start getting into the idea of doing motion assessments. There's no instrument here. Can my body go to this position? Wait, I feel some tension. Where do I feel no tension? If we follow those internal tension barometers, we're going to be in a much safer spot. What do you do with the rack toms? Do you put the bigger drum in the comfortable spot and then move the, the smaller drum to the left? I mean, how do, you, how do you position those? It's kind of like that same... Essentially, yeah, I think that's the best way to go with it is that how I think of it personally is if I've got the two, I got my snare drum, I put my, I have a 10 and a 12 because that's way cooler than a 12 and a 13, obviously. Uh, I've got the 10 and the 12. I put the 10 directly in front of the snare drum. So that's pretty much just a straight shot. And then the 12, rather than being just parallel to it, like I was putting it in a bass drum, is kind of on a slight angle in between the 10 and the floor tom. So it's almost kind of starting to fall down into the floor tom. So instead of it being like, I think there's this traditional idea. I actually, Todd Suckerman does a great job of talking about this as well, where you've got like, this is one level and then floor tom is another level. I think it's a nice melting between the 10, 12 is a little lower and the 16 is a little lower. And that just helps us if you're into the whole, I think Mike Johnson calls it around the world kind of fills, which I'm a big nerd of. If you want that, you want to make sure that everything is kind of following a smooth flow rather than like if you're watching the video up, 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 down, down, you know, it's like, that's kind of awkward. Rather, if I can make it a seamless transition, that's great. And again, if you need another visual representation, Todd Suckerman plays with a ton of floor uh, rack toms. He does a great job of making them flow even with like, I think three or four. And then Mike Mangini's old symmetrical kits. He did a great job where it's not really like rack tom and floor tom, even though they're technically those between the six and his going all the way out, you can see they kind of fall down into the floor, Tom. And I think that's just the smoothest and easiest way to go. But go, but come back to the NASA idea. It's just this nice, smooth gradient. Instead of like black and white, it's just this nice gradient. <laughs> all right, crashes. You know, we've got the left and the right, but I mean, is that the best spot for them? And how high and where should they be? Well, I mean... Best play, you know, that's a great, it's a great question. It comes back to like playing ability. Like what are you going to be playing the most? Um, and what also are you going to be doing them with them? 
Like if you are these Matt Garska, very common high energy metal kind of guys, and you just need to hit the side of the cymbal at the right angle so you don't shred drumsticks, the simple sound bitey thing, like without getting too far into it yet, is following that same NASA, that nice gradient of how do I have a slight angle and positioning it just that I can, from a comfortable position, hit the tip of the crash to achieve the desired sound. If you are a jazzy, Latin-y kind of guy and you're actually playing some of these lighter cymbals, actually, Mark Giuliano, again, is a great example, not necessarily even crashes, but super, super light rides on the crash continuum, we need to make sure that we have them in positions that we can play all the different playing surfaces. So again, following active range of motion and keeping your body in the best position possible is great. My best recommendation to any drummers is if you have two crash cymbals, heck, even three, that you play frequently for recordings or for a gig, place them somewhere within that position I spoke about earlier for the hi-hats. Externally rotate your arms, find where it's comfortable, and then kind of come in. And you'll find, like for me, I've kind of got you know, this 90 degree window, 45 degree on the left and 45 degree on the right. And all of my main stuff is in there. Try to find a position that feels the most comfortable, but the types of gigs that you're playing is, uh, is super important. I'm a gigantic fan, actually, from a functional sense. Um, I think, you know, thinking of some of those multiple crashes, Matt Garska has got an interesting setup where he's got the two crashes over to the top left and he's got all of his China stuff over to the right. And when you watch him play like, you know, I know he's very popular right now, but it's nice because you get two crashes, two different loud sound sources for that type of gig that are, he doesn't have to reach. He's got his hi-hat, he just moves the stick over and he hits a cymbal and hits another cymbal. And then he gets way more ferocious by smashing his China cymbals over on the side. Well, that makes a lot of sense, somewhat. Or we could move it kind of in between us and have it in front. The thing that we start to get into this weird issue of is how many cymbals are you going to play? How many do you need to play? And also, I hate saying it, but what looks cool is a really problem, big problem. I mean, I've heard people you've interviewed before, you've asked about drum set things, and I've heard people talk about, well, I just like where it looks. It's, it looks cool there. Mm-hmm. And that's a real common thing too. Where is it the most playable? Where can you get the sounds you like? And what works best for your body? Excellent. How about moving between instruments? Is there something that we should consider? Like, what do we lead? What part of the body should be controlling those movements? You know, how do we do that without hurting ourselves? That's a super awesome question. And so are you thinking, like, are you thinking both kind of tom rolls or if like I'm going from one side of kit to the other? Both. Let's say you're going from hi-hat position to ride position or, or you have to go quickly to the toms or something. Like quick motions versus smooth transitions. Like how would you yeah. think about it? I think trying to practice using your trunk to do it and keeping your arms as neutral as possible is a great thing. There are specific tempos that it is going to be functionally impossible. Like your example with the hi-hat to the ride. The number of people, like if I said, hey, try and do that with your trunk, that gets really tough to go back and forth with your trunk, especially if you're going back and forth with eighth notes or 16th notes or something like that. And so for quicker stuff where it's just kind of like back and forth, you know, I've seen a few different things. I there's this thing that I've seen a lot of is where someone will take their wrist and they'll actually change their wrist technique a little bit where they'll kind of flop in and out. Musically, that works well. Like sonically, you can get the sounds that you want, but you get to some really interesting wrist positions. And I'm not a big fan, especially on the back side of it. One, if you're playing between two different sound sources, like two different rack toms, hi-hat ride, practice doing it from the shoulder 
strictly, but try to see if you can keep everything as still as you possibly can. See how that feels. When you're in playing mode, if you're playing specifically that pattern, I don't know anyone that would play that exactly, if you go, ride hats, ride hats, you'll start to get a little bit of trunk involved and that'll be okay. On the kind of larger, uh, more energetic, choppy, solo, higher frequency energy end, I would recommend like if you're going from one drum to another, like if you're just playing groups of three, floor tom, floor tom, floor tom, hi-hat, 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 and going back and forth, I'd recommend thinking way more about the trunk and leading from the center because we can get way more torque, way more speed by turning our torso a little bit than if we move our arms. Uh, the simple thing is if we just think about a circle and I've got the axis of a circle and I got a one inch dot away from it and then I got a six inch dot away from it. Well, if I move that one inch dot in, down just a little, that six inch, like if I move the one inch dot down just a centimeter, well, that one that's five extra inches away is going to move six centimeters. So if I move from my centimeter or my axis of rotation is around my spine, I don't have to move very far to get huge motions to happen. But on that note, like from a very athletic end, I would encourage any tr uh, trainer, you can tell what I talk about most days, working with fitness <laughs> professionals, <laughs> I would encourage any drummer to actually like set up some mechanical exercises and go, okay, I need to work on my speed a little bit and my endurance with going back and forth between this thing and this thing because I got to do it for this gig. Set a metronome and actually practice mobility exercises there's so many examples of like taking rudiments and breaking them up over drums. But I think like the most bare bones example is taking either double strokes or single strokes, pick your two furthest away instruments and find a tempo and subdivision. You can practice actually going from one to the other. I, I noodle around with floor toms on both sides, left and right. Never have I ever gigged with a left floor tom. But when I'm at home, I do it as an actual exercise mechanical thing. And going from one floor tom to the other and practicing going back and forth and switching subdivisions is one of the best things because even though that's an insane feat of athleticism to do the virtual Donati speed, if you get any bit of speed better than where you are now, the normal stuff you do from a hi-hat to a floor tom, from a snare to a floor tom, just ends up happening faster and you have this nicer field of Goldilocks zone, so to speak. I hope that helps, but I think that's a lot of fun. All right, let's get to a few of your listener questions. I still have a handful here that were submitted a couple weeks ago, so I'm going to try to get through as many as I can here. The first one is from Gren Stella. What books or different methods would you recommend to enhance advancements in precision, speed, and power over time? Looking for constant progress. Uh, I have two approaches to this. I think, I mean, I'm revisiting stick control and syncopation all the time and trying different ways to, you know, apply that in different different styles, different contexts, different dynamics. I think those two, if you combine them in different ways, you really can't go wrong. And then a piggyback with that, four-way coordination is a great book, which is essentially an adaptation of stick control using all four limbs that can give you some great ideas and, and, and endless challenges. Um, what else? I've been, um, when you're saying precision, speed, and power over time, so you're basically talking technical studies. Um, any kind of rudimental snare drum book, I'm always revisiting Wilcoxon. Um, there's some more contemporary ones. The Matt, the, um, I think it's Matt Savage rudimental cookbook or something. Just constantly working out of different you know, marching style books will always increase your power and speed and precision. 
Um, but don't forget, you know, don't overlook the basics. That's what I'm reminding myself constantly. Like just the other day, I was going through the, the first section of syncopation, which is just like quarter note combinations, playing them super quiet with a metronome just clicking in the room, not with headphones. I'm having to in, and turning the volume down. So can I play really accurately at quiet dynamics that's translated into making my louder playing more accurate and controlled? So it, I don't think you need to... Although I love having a huge library of methods and stuff, I think the classics are classics for a reason. And, you know, don't be, don't, I wouldn't be too quick to say I'm done with stick control because if you have any sense of, of imagination, you can take that thing anywhere. I mean, just start replacing the rights with the foot or, you know, turning the rights into a right paradiddle and the lefts into a left paradiddle. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. So I'm old school, stick control, syncopation, new breed is always great, four-way coordination. And then from there, I go into different styles like Afro-Cuban books and West African books and Billy Martin's rhythm book and, you know, different. Um, recently, I'm into the Zorro and Daniel Glass early commandments of early R&B it just there's then I go into different styles, but stick control, syncopation, new breed, forward coordination, you can be set for life. All right, let's go on to another one. All right, this one is from Orlando Daly, and the question is: Any thoughts on aluminum drum kits? My only experience with aluminum drum kits is with a Q Drums aluminum kit, which I think still had maple reinforcement rings or something. Um, Fantastic. Absolutely amazing. It was an incredible instrument and, you know, everything that Jeremy's ever made has been incredible. So, you know, that, I think that was an awesome kit. It was much um, fuller and warmer than I would had expected. I don't know that I would play it on a jazz gig or something, maybe, but for like a, just a big open rock sound, it's kind of hard to beat. So check out Q drum stuff if you can find it. Also make sure, um, if you have the resources to f support his GoFundMe campaign, he's almost at his um, at the at, almost at his goal. So go check that on GoFundMe for the you know Jeremy Berman. He's dealing with with stomach cancer and his, his medical treatment and all that kind of stuff. So that's still going on. Go check that out. But I don't say that I don't pick his kit just because I wanted to, to promote the GoFundMe. His aluminum, his his metal shell stuff is is second to none. So I love him. Check him out. This one comes from Evan L. Gross. What inspires you to purchase a new piece of gear for personal use, for, for personal use, not for the podcast? Uh, it is usually some sort of itch that I can't scratch. Um, I was over at Hawthorne, and you know he had posted a picture of this solid mahogany snare, a leady snare with Gretsch hoops and Rogers throw off. It was a real kind of a, a mutt junkyard uh, drum but had a solid mahogany shell i mean no solid walnut shell and i think that's what it is no solid mahogany shell and i as soon as i saw it i was like ooh, i think i need that drum and i let it go for like three or four weeks and then i was over there filming something and it, it was still there so i was like ah, i think that drum needs to be mine so usually it's some sort of just itch and intuition i don't have uh, a solid mahogany six and a half inch deep drum so it fills out a, a, a hole in my collection but it was just something like inspiring that i need that and as soon as i hit it, it was like yep that's a sound that i don't have that dark kind of punchy you know 
it's just a it's a unique sound that you can only get from a vintage instrument. And then just a couple of weeks ago, which was actually inspired by the main segment of this episode, I purchased a chrome over brass Ludwig snare because again, it was like I have all the I have all my Ludwig collection is pretty much complete. That was the one piece I didn't have, and it was just something in the back of my mind saying, "Just get it. You need one of those. It, it'll probably fill some sort of need. Um, so just get it." So usually it's just intuition. And then whenever I think I want to buy something, I'll usually add it to my cart and leave it for several days. And then I'll come back to it. Like, do I really, really want it? Or is it just an inspiration at the moment? If I really, really want it, I'll figure out how to get it. That's my approach. It's usually filling a gap in my collection and just a, a inspiration, just a, a desire that I, that I want that for my collection. That's it. All right, this one uh, is from only Ash Remains 666. I think I've already answered it, but I'm going to just re read it and repeat it. What are your favorite instructional drum books? I work out of syncopation. I work out of stick control. I work out of um, new breed. Lately, I've been working out of, you know, again, oh gosh, I'm just constantly revisiting, like, just the classic things. But Billy Martin's book is really inspiring. I think everyone should get that. Uh, Mark Giuliano's book is really, really great. Carter McLean's book is really great. So it's, it's kind of like endless. Um, you just have to kind of decide what you want to explore. Um, John Riley's books are just absolute classics. But all that stuff is, is ancillary to like, have you gotten the most out of stick control? Have you gotten the most out of syncopation? Is your coordination together when you're dealing with... Um, the new breed. Oh, and a similar jazz version of the new breed would be Ari Honig's book systems. That's, that's the, a, a similar approach to new breed, which takes a, a more of a 16th note base rock approach. Ari's is triplet based, but it's the same kind of concept. Great for independence and coordination. So that that's my core. That was a pretty funny one. This is another one from only Ash remains 666. Will you and Mike Johnson do another podcast in the future? Well, we already answered that earlier in the episode. So hopefully he and I will coordinate and we'll get, get back together regularly on this show. Maybe some other projects down the road, but yep. Hope you enjoyed that segment and we'll wrap it up next week. All right. That's all the time I have for listener questions in this episode. If you have any questions, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast.gmail.com. Or you can shoot them on a DM to the Drum Factory Direct Instagram page, or you can shoot me a personal DM at Mike Dawson Drums. Let me know any questions you have. Um, and also, if you have any questions for someone you would like me to try to reach, I'd like to start doing that too, sending some of these out to builders and drummers and educators and all that kind of stuff. So again, drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Shoot over your questions. All right, we're almost at the end of the episode here, which means it is time for the warehouse pick of the week. This week, uh, we were cleaning up the warehouse and we discovered boxes upon boxes of tambourines. So if you're looking for any variation of a classic plastic style tambourine, we've got them. We've got the moon shape. We've got single row. We've got double row. We've got one with an extra jingle in the middle. We've got hi-hat tambourines. We've got stick jinglers we've got ones with heads on them we've got everything i've got a range of them here now we got this guy which has two rows we have the headed simple wood stuff we've got your classic 
different color, all kinds of different colors. The blue one. We've got mountable ones with a, a mount for a hi-hat stand or a, a cymbal top with something you can hit with your stick. This one, we've got two different types of these hi-hat jinglers. So you got a single row and we also have a double row if you want to do your John Bonham thing. We have tons of this stuff. We have a stick jingler. I mean, it's pretty much anything you can imagine. If you need to just get some accessories, fill them out for your band or for your teaching studio or for your home recording studio. You can never have too many tambourines. I've got a whole bin of them here, and I'm constantly looking for new sounds. So uh, I'm going to drop in some demos of, of the, the basic styles that we have. But, yeah, go over to the drumfactorydirect.com, search for tambourines. They're they're priced ready to go out the door. So that's our pick of the week, various DFD tambourines. Here's some demos. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you're consuming this podcast. Give us a nice written review, five-star rating. That does help the show rank higher when people search for drum or drums or drum podcasts. And like I always say, I want to get every drummer on the planet checking out this show because that's what it's here for. It's for all of us to get together and be nerds like we always want to be. And... Also, if you're not subscribing to our YouTube channel, make sure you hit the button. We're almost at our goal of 1,000. I want to get there ASAP. And that's it. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.